Our reading this morning is from Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I say, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Waiting can be hard, waiting for candles to light when they're not lighting up when you want them to. But waiting can be hard when things don't go as you expect, especially when you're waiting for a desired outcome, waiting for a particular job to come through, waiting for a child to be conceived, waiting for an organ to be transplanted, waiting for justice for someone who is oppressed you or abused you. These are all difficult circumstances to find ourselves waiting in. And even if it's not us who are, is experiencing the waiting, we often don't know what to do or say for those we care about who have been waiting a long time for things. After all, how many times can you say, wow, that's, that's really hard, or I'm with you and I believe something will come through? How many times we, we, can you say those things before it feels like it's ringing hollow? And you might even not believe those words because it's been such a long time, but you don't dare say that to your friends. How do we find strength and comfort in our waiting? How do we find strength and comfort when so many things seem beyond our control? You know, waiting when things feel out of control isn't something that is just experienced as individuals. Even as a nation, based on what seems to be happening politically, there is a not-so-insignificant group who feels that life, as they have known, is changing too quickly for their comfort. And so, rather than wait, it's time to take matters into their own hands, rallying around tropes and memes that demonize other people and political groups. Sometimes waiting is just too hard, so we just need to take comfort in asserting our strength to get what we think 
that we want. You know, Advent is a season to acknowledge that things in our lives and in our world are things that we're often waiting for. And they're often things that are beyond our control. And Advent is a season where we can say, we can name those things and how hard the waiting can be. But the Advent season also reminds us that our waiting is not in vain because our waiting is set between the arrivals of two hopes, the past arrival of Jesus and the future arrival of Jesus. And in this Isaiah text today that Kristen read for us, we find out that many things seem out of control, but there are things that we can control and find hope in. We can find, we can wait in comfort. We can wait in readiness. And we can wait in strength. Now before we dive into this text, context is really important to understand the prophets. They are very situational, making references to circumstances that we're often not very familiar with. Up until Isaiah chapter 39, in the text, the chapter before where we read, Isaiah is prophesying to the kingdom of Judah, that little dot, like where Jerusalem is. And it's a time when they are in decline. And at the same time, there are, they are surrounded by tremendous uh, uprisings of Assyria uh, to the east and Egypt to the south. And King Hezekiah, who's the king of Judah at this time, grapples with the loss of Judah's sovereignty and independence. In the first half of Isaiah, we find themes of Israel being called uh, as God's vineyard. And Israel was meant to be fruitful, to be blessing the nations. But instead, they have been unfruitful in what they've done, mostly because they've been unfaithful to God. Specifically, God charges them with a series of woes in their failure to care for the poor, for the widow, and for the orphan, those who are vulnerable amongst them. And then we come to chapters 38 and 39, where we find that King Hezekiah, in his desire to keep things together, basically hands over the keys to the palace and hands over all the passwords to Israel's bank accounts to the kingdom of Babylon, who's rising up, the next world superpower. So chapter 40 here begins a new section. It's about a servant who is called by God that culminates in the famous suffering servant text in chapter 53. The tone shifts from confrontation to tender words of comfort and assurance for a people who have been taken captive and now live in exile in Babylon. God's people are no longer in the promised land anymore. Their riches have been pillaged. Their youngest and brightest have been are been taken away to be trained in a foreign land, indoctrinated in Babylon's ways, and to serve Babylon's goals. Israel's climax as a nation is now behind them. God's people wait for a servant to, who can help Israel fulfill God's plan for them. And God comes to them saying these words. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. They're in exile at this point. But the assurance is that God is in control. He is aware of their situation. He speaks to a key image in their identity as a people. And when he addresses Jerusalem in verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. 
It's as if God were here addressing America, saying, Washington, D.C., I know things are hard, and I see your pain. God assures them that he knows their suffering, and though they're, though they're in exile, they're, not, they're far away from their homeland in Babylon, this is hard service to pay for their unfaithfulness, their unfaithfulness to God. But God still calls them my people and declares comfort over them. This is a reflection of God's faithful love for God's people, despite their waywardness. And here we see that waiting is not done in vain. In our waiting, we have a God who sees and who knows our predicament. God speaks tenderly towards Jerusalem and towards us. The tender kindness isn't just that of empathy and compassion, but it's a tenderness that, that is inviting a response to God's love. When we wait in situations that are beyond our control, worlds, uh, words like this remind us that God does care and God is involved. The God of Scripture does not sit aloof as a sadistic parent towards his children, frustrated with their behavior. God speaks words of assurance and comfort. And God's comfort enables God's people to persevere in the midst of waiting. You know, during the Advent season, as you take time to recall and perhaps name some of those things that you have been waiting for in your lives, or things that you've been waiting for in our world, might you also hear God's comforting words in the midst of the waiting? What might the Spirit of God be inviting you to pay attention to as he shows his love to us? See, the comfort of God's assurance informs how we wait. One of the gifts that we have of living on this side of Christ's incarnation, the very first Christmas, is that it's very easy for us to see Christ foreshadowed in passages like these. In fact, if you've been a Christian adjacent long enough, you might immediately hear the allusion to John the Baptist one of the, as one of the messengers who prepares the way for Jesus in verse 3. But one of the challenges of living on this side of Christ's incarnation is that we can overread Jesus into these texts. We, miss, we overlook what it meant to its original hearers. You see, when Isaiah received this prophecy, he wasn't just blindly writing something down that would only make sense to someone 750 years later. Jesus, when Jesus actually arrived on the scene, the Old Testament was written for, uh, as a text for our Jewish friends. And when they read the Old Testament, they aren't reading it to find Jesus because they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Anointed One. But when they do read, they read to see that they are part of the story that's in front of them. There's something that we modern hearers often fail to do. And for Isaiah's immediate hearers, who were Jews, they were trying to make sense of where God was at work in the midst of being in exile. They heard these words as words of comfort, but they also heard these words as an invitation, an invitation to partner faithfully with God in God's work in the world. In verse 3 and 6, it's coming up on the screen here, Isaiah makes reference to a voice. But who is this voice? Is it John the Baptist? Is it Jesus? Who is this voice that proclaims the arrival of the Lord? Well, verse 27 gives us a hint later on. We didn't read that, but it says, 
Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. There we find that God is not addressing some individual or some future individual, but he is addressing Jacob and Israel. And it even becomes clearer in the next chapter. Flip to 41, verse 89. If you've got your Bible or scroll down, it's coming up on the screen. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners. I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. You know, when we read texts here and in many other passages, especially in this chapter 40 to chapter 55, we'll, we often assume that the servant is referencing Jesus. But that wouldn't make sense to Isaiah's hearers, particularly when God is addressing Jacob and Israel as God's chosen servant. They would hear themselves as the ones that God is addressing. The story of Scripture is that God has always been looking for a part, people to partner with to do God's good work in the world. And despite Israel being in exile, God assures Israel with words of comfort that God has not rejected them. God is still calling them in this uh, uh, mission to do God's good work in the world. They are chosen by God. And even more importantly, they still have a part to play in God's plan for creation. Even though they're not in their homeland. Even though it doesn't seem like their world is the way that they expect. And even though they are wayward, they ignore God and they, in fact, sinned against God. So, they can wait in readiness. They wait in readiness, not just for some future servant and Messiah, but they have a role to play while they wait. The voice of the servant calling in verse 3 is not just a reference to John the Baptist 750 years later, but it's an invitation to the servant, that's Jacob, in Israel. That's God's people now in the present to do the work of making a straight path for the anointed one to arrive. It's not just preparing the way for an exodus for all of God's people to leave this forsaken land to go to some home. But it's a combining this ancient picture of the Lord's coming to help God's people, but also this practice of ancient people to construct a processional uh, path for visiting dignitaries and kings. You know, in D.C., we get a sense of what that's like when there, whenever there's a presidential inauguration. When that takes place, the Capitol grounds are transformed into this world stage. People prepare performances to welcome the new president. Pennsylvania Avenue is cordoned off between the White House and the Capitol. Security is in place to make the new president's arrival obstacle-free so the president can be seen, so the president can be celebrated. That's what, the role, that's what the role is for God's people now, to wait in readiness for Jesus' future arrival. It's not just to wait on the sidelines looking for motorcades to arrive or wait to be swept away by the arrival of the Messiah. Instead, God's people are called now to be part of this preparation process that makes the way for the future, uh, the anointed one's arrival. God's people are to prepare telling others around them. Imagine if it's like that. You've gone to the Pennsylvania Avenue waiting for the president to come by. You're like, don't you know who's coming by? 
You know who's coming? Things are going to be different. You just wait and see. Now, you may not feel that way about presidents, but we certainly are invited to feel that way when it comes to Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, Christ's followers are invited to join this call for God's people. We find that we too are called to be God's partner in the world, to prepare the way for Jesus' coming arrival. And we don't do that by sitting around moping and hoping, moping and hoping for Jesus to come like Eeyore. Neither do we wait in readiness for some Rambo like Jesus to come and blow away our enemies and opponents by suiting up for war and demanding cultural power to be maintained. Instead, God's people are called to prepare the way by renewing the world as if King Jesus was already here. Jesus' followers are called to bring beauty and joy and healing and justice wherever God calls us to. We are called to live faithfully as God's servants, caring for the poor, for the marginalized. We're not just waiting for Jesus to come back and sweep God's people away from this God-forsaken land. We participate in God's uh, work that began in Jesus' first arrival. We are God's servants following in the footsteps of our master Jesus. We are to wait in readiness for Jesus' future arrival. Now this week you may have seen in the WCF newsletter, if you're not on it, sign up, subscribe on our website. You saw an article that was linked, uh, that was written about one of our WCF members. The reporter, her name is Mariah Helena Carey. I found that quite whimsical. She opens the article saying this. For many years, there has been a dead tree at Stanton Park. That's just three blocks over from the church. I've tweeted about it, complained, tagged, and asked directly the National Park Service gardeners about it. But the little sad tree continues to be there, mostly small and limbless. But then one day, an anonymous creative person hung a lovely garland with autumnal colors. There was a green marker next to the installation, and several people had added things they were grateful for on their own leaf. Wondering who might have started uh, this, uh, this spark of beauty in the park, she posted a question on social media, to which our very own Rachel Trigo replied. Since you asked, it was me. Yeah, I'm the artist behind this. And there's a new art project that has just begun for this month. So you can follow her on Instagram or pop over by the, the park after church or after the picnic today, or the, 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 the cocoa and, and carols. You know, many people in the neighborhood have been waiting. They've been waiting for the National Park Service to do something about this, what they think is an eyesore of a tree. And Rachel felt led not only just to wait for someone else to do something, but she would take her gifts and begin sharing beauty in the world that encourages others. And she says this about it. Sorry, I need to find my spot here. Oh yeah, this tree has been depressing me for a while in the midst of everything else depressing in our world. But then I thought, well, if they won't chop it down and plant a new one, maybe I can give it new life in another way. It allowed her to lament, and the gratitude tree was there for giving thanks. You know, in many ways, by installing art on this dead tree, Rachel was making a straight path 
She was raising up valleys. She was lowering mountains to prepare the way for the Lord's arrival. By sharing her gifts and talents, she made it one step easier for people in the neighborhood to reflect gratitude for God's goodness, whether or not they might name the God of Scripture for themselves. She made it easier for people to see the beauty of God's kingdom so that they perhaps might one day, too, welcome Jesus joyfully when he comes once again. You know, seeing our role as God's partner gives us great strength as we wait. But not because we're such great partners for God. Remember how earlier I mentioned how easy it is for us on this side of Christ's incarnation to read Jesus into these texts? And we, of course, we do see Jesus in these texts, but not because they're written specifically about Jesus. They are de describing the calling of God's people, Jacob and Israel then, and followers of Christ now, to be called as God's faithful partners in the world, preparing for Jesus' future arrival. But we can't get away from seeing Jesus in these texts. If you take a look at verses 10 and 11, where Isaiah says, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with them, and his recompense accompanies them. him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He leads those that have young. We find that Jesus is the one who is able to live out God's call on earth perfectly. Only Jesus is able to do the work of Israel and Jacob and God's people in the church perfectly. And that's why we see Jesus in the texts. It's not so much that these words are specifically about Jesus. It's more that only Jesus was able to fulfill these words that were spoken of a worthy servant called to be God's partner, faithful to do God's work in the world. Even though they were given the standard operating procedure, the manual for being God's faithful partner in the Torah, Israel failed to live up to it as God's partner in the world. And for those who follow Christ, we will continue to fail to live perfectly as God's partner in the world. But the beautiful thing is, is, is it doesn't depend on us and on our strength. Only Jesus has lived out God's call perfectly. Only Jesus has done the work of the faithful servant that Israel and Jacob and the church is called to do. And he does it with strength and compassion. He does it with justice and love. In Jesus' first arrival, he began this work of leveling the mountains, raising up valleys, making a highway in the desert for God's people to see the living God. And those who have come to know Christ are also invited to follow Jesus in this work now. We wait and we work in strength. Not our strength, but with the strength that Jesus has demonstrated in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. You know, as we approach Christmas in this Advent season, we can acknowledge that we are waiting for many things in our lives and in this world. But we don't do it waiting in vain. We can persevere. We wait in the comfort of God. We wait in readiness. And we wait in the strength of the Lord. May it be so. Amen.